Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The Palace of Westminster is an unusual building. Spread out over eight acres on the banks of the River Thames, the home of the UK Parliament is a honeycomb of wood-panelled chambers, state apartments, winding corridors and shady courtyards. All told, it contains three towers, a hundred staircases, three miles of passageways and over a thousand rooms. It looks, from the outside, very much like the kind of place where mysterious traditions thrive and where secrets could be easily kept. And in 2009, as you'll know, one of those secrets was exposed, sending the whole of Westminster into a kind of frenzy. That experience clearly left its scars because even 10 years later, it's hard to find a single politician who was there at the time who saw the turmoil firsthand and is willing to talk about it now on the record. Luckily for us, though, while it was hard to find someone, it wasn't impossible. And his name is Norman Baker. Millions of receipts of expenses claims by all MPs. Mr Speaker. The Daily Telegraph has obtained them all. The need to recognise and understand how angry people are. We locked these guys in a room and we just said, here's the disc, work out, start going through it. I'm Pete Norton, and this is Expenses, a podcast about journalism, politics, and what it's like to bring a huge national secret into the light. If I can begin, can you talk a little bit about your life before politics? Because I know you worked a number of different jobs before becoming an MP. I had a very wide range of jobs, which I think MPs should do. There's nothing worse than an MP coming in from central office somewhere or other at the age of 23 and pretending to know the world, because they don't. I didn't do it deliberately, but as it happened, I had a wide range from public and private sector. I was a regional director for a record company, Our Price Records. We had a huge number of stores in central London, which were all within my patch. And uh, then I went to, I thought, I'll try the public sector, so I went to British Rail and ended up effectively running, booking clerk officially for uh, running, running um, Hornsey Station. Um, I was also an EFL teacher, as well, including in Sweden. That's English as foreign language. English as foreign yeah. language. Uh, what else did I do? Uh, I ran a wine shop. I was an uh, environmental researcher. I was a... Uh, what else did I do? I can't remember now. Lots of jobs. Having built up this wide range of working experience, 
Baker took his first step into politics in the late 1980s, when he became a local councillor in the district of Lewis in the south of England. And 10 years later, on the same wave of change that swept New Labour into office, he stepped up into national politics when he was elected as a Liberal Democrat MP for Lewis, which, small but interesting footnote, made him the first non-conservative MP there since 1874. You might imagine, as a new MP, freshly elected to Parliament, that all sorts of services would spin into action around you after the election, civil servants and party assistants making sure you had everything you needed in order to begin this important new job. But it didn't turn out like that. The day I arrived, it was well, it was like Tom Brown's school days, actually, <laughs> because nobody contacted me to say, this is what you do. I mean, my party didn't contact me after I'd won. Uh, the House of Commons didn't contact me. And I was just sort of sitting there wondering what happened next. So I then sort of turned up at the gate and, uh, and said, what do I do now? And they showed me through to the whip's office and... Um, and I met the, there was no room or anything, there was no telephone, there was no space for a desk or anything, and, and there was letters piling up everywhere. I mean, it's hopeless, really. And uh, all they gave you when you arrived, I think it's a bit better now, they gave you a, um, a locker with a key, and they gave you a pink ribbon. And when you said to them, what's the pink ribbon for? They said, look at me askance and say, that's where you hang your sword, sir. And that was it. That's all you were given when you arrived. With, with not, a, not, not a hint of joke about that? No, no, that was serious. It had been done that way since, you know, I don't know, 843 or something. And it was just the same all the way through. Traditions are very strong in the House of Commons. Yeah. Did you have to go and buy a sword? <laughs> I didn't buy a sword, no. I mean, I failed out on that one, I think. In spite of his shortcomings in the sword-owning department, Baker became a prominent figure in the House of Commons and remained an MP for the next 18 years, including stints as a frontbench minister within the Tory Lib Dem coalition government. And just like Heather Brooke, who we met in the previous episode, Baker has been a lifelong believer in the value of freedom of information and a thorn in the side of those who'd rather keep parliamentary business secret. So when the debate about MPs' expenses being made available to the public started to flare in Westminster in the mid-2000s, Baker saw it as his duty to fight for the public's right to know, even as many of his colleagues in Parliament were dreaming up inventive ways to keep us firmly in the dark. And to better explain what Baker did here, I'm going to jump in with a brief aside. The mechanics of Westminster politics, the means by which acts and laws are proposed and then voted on, are not entirely dissimilar to the palace's 19th century architecture. There are ancient precedents and grandly named loopholes and complicated points of order and a golden staff representing the authority of the monarch at the centre of it all. And because of this, explaining the ins and outs of a parliamentary tussle can quickly become a confusing and jargon-heavy exercise as private members' bills and presentation bills start to pile up on one another. And so, to give you an edited-down-for-clarity version of what Baker did here, the essence of what happened is that in April 2007, a Conservative MP called David McLean, put forward a special bill which, if passed, would have excluded the whole of Parliament from the Freedom of Information Act, like pulling a giant question-proof curtain all around the Palace of Westminster. McLean, who was a shrewd political operator, had brokered support from the Labour government of the day for this bill and put it up on a Friday, where it seemed likely to slip through almost unnoticed. The only catch was that, because of the type of bill it was, it had to be voted on and passed within a limited time window that afternoon. Otherwise, it'd drop out of sight. 
All of which meant that for Norman Baker... The only option then was to fill the bus to this, and because of the private member's bill, uh, it was limited in time. And therefore, one Friday, I duly turned up with two or three others who were of similar minds, Simon Hughes, from the Lib Dems, David Winnick, I remember, to uh, a Labour MP who was sympathetic. Richard Shepherd, I think, on the Tory side, was sympathetic. So I remember speaking for, I think, two and a half hours or thereabouts, without hesitation, deviation, repetition, uh, to try to uh, block this bill. What did you talk about? Oh, I talked about the bill, but I, I, I think um, Quentin Letts called my speech wonderfully circuitous. Um, nice phrase. Um, and David Winnick, I mean, when I looked like I was going to run out of ideas... If you look up the transcripts of this debate in Hansard, which is the official record of Parliament, you'll find a scene worthy of Charles Dickens, as Baker and his colleagues stubbornly hold the floor, raising point after point in beautifully mannered prose, helping each other out when it's clear that one of them is running out of steam, and beginning their sentences with lines like, I shall now briefly refer to Amendment Number 1, after which, of course, they are anything but brief. And the tactic worked. They ran the clock out, and the bill disappeared. But then, as elsewhere in the expenses story, something rather suspicious happened. Against all precedent, the bill reappeared on the parliamentary schedule a few weeks later, also on a Friday. This time, the forces ranged behind it, Politicians, including members of the Labour government who wanted to keep Parliament business exempt from the Freedom of Information Act, were better prepared. And they managed to silence Baker and push the bill through. It looked like a disaster for freedom of information. But it actually didn't play out that way, because this time, the winds had changed. Baker's filibustering had helped to raise awareness of what was going on in Parliament, and the press piled in. I mean, you guys... Um, and everybody else in Fleet Street, I've been called it Fleet Street still, was uh, was ready. And uh, when this thing went through and um, the tactics were used to shut people up and everything else, um, I mean, the press went to town the next day, and quite rightly so. Yeah. Um, and then what happened, of course, was uh, unusually, or uniquely, I think, they couldn't find a member of the House of Lords to take the bill up. It was so toxic that even with us best dodge gloves, no one would pick this bill up on the Lords, so it had to die. With this bill gone... Another barrier preventing MPs' expenses from being made public had crumbled away. And, almost exactly two years later, all the remaining barriers would be done away with when that red USB hard drive made its way to the Telegraph's offices and our reporters began to publish their discoveries. Baker remembers that moment in early May 2009 like it was yesterday. And we'll hear what it was like to be in Parliament when it all kicked off, right after this. I've been working for the last three months on this series, reading everything I can find on MPs' expenses, interviewing guests, writing scripts, and editing hours of recordings down into the episodes you'll hear on this feed. None of that would have been possible without the support of our subscribers. Their contribution to the paper allows us to have the time to work on projects like expenses, and it also allows our reporters to continue to uncover secrets and hold the powerful to account, just as they did 10 years ago. So, if you'd like to support what we're doing and to get unlimited access to the huge range of quality journalism that we publish every day on politics, sport, business, the arts, fashion, and more, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio, where you'll find a special offer for our listeners, free for your first 30 days, and then from £2 per week. That's telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio, or follow the link in the show notes to this episode. 
Do you remember the day that the story broke? Yes, I do. I remember very well. And uh, and it was um, your paper's biggest ever success, I think. I mean, it was a enormously powerful story. And, of course, even that was mishandled by the House authorities because what should have happened immediately uh, was the House should have, in their own interest, I should say, just publish everything immediately and try and kill the rest of your stories. That's what you should have done. And it didn't. <laughs> it's like you run story after story after story for days. I mean, it's completely incompetent. What, what, what was the atmosphere in, in Parliament on, <clears throat> among, on those days? I think there, was, um, there were some people who were genuinely horrified by what happened. Um, there were others who were frightened about what would come out about them. Um, and there was a, a degree of hostility to the press, to Telegraph, to me, actually, um, uh, particularly to MPs who'd been um, trying to throw this open, who'd, who'd supported me and uh, made speeches on that particular Friday, because it was seen as um, not part of the club, letting the side down. That's how it was seen. That's how, how was that people... hostility expressed to you? Oh, it was, uh, it was um, expressed quite openly sometimes, and, it was, and uh, you know, including by people of my own party. I mean, it, was just, it wasn't very pleasant. Um, I was seen as kind of disloyal to the team. Well, I'm sorry, I wasn't. Actually, what I was doing was, I think, doing a favour because Parliament's now in the best position than it would have been otherwise. We're going to get onto the fallout from the scandal and whether or not it really improved politics in a moment. But first, I wanted to ask Baker a question that it's very hard to get MPs from this era to answer. And it's this. Given his first-hand experience of the system, did he have a view on where it all went wrong for MPs' expenses? And why no one in power did anything to stop unfair and dishonest claims being made in the first place? I mean, the key thought was that uh, there was an unwritten rule, certainly with the Tory and Labour front benches, where MPs were said, we can't really put your pay up because everybody will object to your pay going up, but you can claim this, this on the expenses and push expenses up and no one will notice. So MPs were, were, were encouraged almost by their WIPs offices to exceed their expenses limits or to claim for what they wouldn't normally claim for as a substitute for a proper pay increase. That's where the problem arose originally. And did you experience that yourself? Were you tacitly encouraged? or what, what, How did well, that encouragement take form? Uh, well, we weren't holier than now in the Lib Dem, did it until we were, but I wasn't encouraged to do that, no. I mean, but what we did do to come back to your question was there was a general view that it was all right to buy property and to make a killing from it. Um, I didn't agree with that. I never agree with that. And throughout my time in Parliament, I only rented somewhere. I rented somewhere, one bedroom place all the way through, which I needed to have in London, I think, uh, for my job. But then when I left Parliament, then I had no property and that was how it should be. I look around at some of my parliamentary colleagues and they become millionaires or, you know, half millionaires as a consequence of property speculation. They bought somewhere cheap in 1997. The property values, of course, have shot up since then. They sold it and made a, make a packet on it. Well, actually, I don't think that's ethical. How was it being communicated to MPs that it was okay for them to do this? This is a nod and a wink from, from their whips offices. That's how it was done. And what does that mean? Well, I mean, that, that when they arrived in Parliament, um, you know, the, you, you deal with your whips offices because that's the, the kind of the way the parties are structured. Um, they tell you when to vote and, or when you have to begin to vote. They're the ones who regulate misbehaviour, allegedly, and so on. So there's a kind like of, the prefects of the Yes, effectively, yeah, party. prefects of the party. So they effectively give a nod and a wink to people, say, well, you know, you can't have a pay rise, but, you know, have you thought about claiming for that? And some of that went on quite yeah. clearly, and that's, that's why some of those claims went in. 
I'd like to dig into a little bit into the kind of the psychology almost of of how this system had evolved. Why do you think people exploited it? Would you just put it down to human nature, or because the most extreme argument is that some people believe this showed that the political class was particularly venal and self-serving? Yeah, I don't think they were particularly venal. I think I think you give anybody the opportunity to have free money at someone else's expense without being found out about it. A lot of people would take that. I should say a lot of MPs were honest and didn't exploit the system. Uh, and it's only fair to make that point. But there were sufficient numbers that did to make it appalling. But I would suggest in any in any walk of life, under those circumstances, human nature says most people would do the same thing. MPs are no worse or no better than anybody else in that sense. If you had to apportion a fault or a blame, where do you think it, it lies? Was it, was it in a kind of cowardice to, or a lack of courage to, to confront this head-on within Parliament at an earlier stage? I think the thing built up over over many years, and I think the feed office staff got worn down. Um, the nature of material you can claim for got wider. It became more common to, to abuse the system um, or to interpret it liberally, depending on how you want to describe it. And nobody actually thought, I don't think at any stage, what does this look like if it comes out? But nobody thought it would come out. Ten years on, and Baker is no longer an MP. He lost his seat in the 2015 general election and has returned now to the varied working life that he had before entering Parliament. These days, he does a mixture of broadcasting, lecturing and writing. And he's in a band called, appropriately enough, the Reform Club. Given his unique insider's perspective on the scandal, I wanted to finish up by gauging his opinion on a few things which have changed since 2009. The first is MPs' pay, because as we've heard, the allowances system that The Telegraph exposed was being used by many MPs as a kind of unofficial salary top-up, under-the-table compensation for the fact that they hadn't had a significant pay rise in years. And in the years since the expenses story broke, quite a lot has changed. The accommodation allowance can no longer be used as a kind of property investment grant. MPs' pay is no longer set by Parliament, but instead by an independent body. And the basic salary for a backbench MP has actually gone up from £65,000 a year in 2009 to nearly £80,000 a year today. Adjusting for inflation, this isn't actually a real terms pay rise, but it certainly isn't a pay cut either. Given all this, and the fact that politicians' pay is still clearly a thorny issue, I wanted to know if Baker thinks MPs are paid enough in 2019. Well, they're paid better than they were, and I've always thought that was right. And I think people underestimate what an MP does if an MP is doing a job properly. Um, what does an MP do when they're doing a well, job Well, an MP properly? needs to be active in their constituency um, three, four days a week. And if they're not doing that, they're not doing the job properly. Uh, it's not how often they sit on the green benches. That's absolutely not a measure of what an MP should be doing. I mean, if I was sitting on the green benches for a whole day listening to a debate about fishing off Dundee, I'd be wasting my time. I really would be, and my kitchen wouldn't be benefiting from that at all. So, um, yes, MPs, I think, compared to their colleagues in other countries in Europe, are underpaid, or paid less, put it that way. And certainly, if you look at a country like Sweden, um, where MPs are paid very well, they don't have constituencies in the same way. They simply have a legislative role in the parliament. They sit for fewer weeks in the year than the House of Commons does. So you could make a case that MPs are not paid 
the going rate compared to other MPs in other countries. That's that's probably the way I put it. I guess there's an obvious counter argument to that, which is to say that the average full time salary in the UK is somewhere around thirty thousand pounds a year. Yeah. So to someone who would say, why should MPs get nearly three times that? What's the argument? Well, I think the argument would be that. Um, First of all, it's a, if they're doing their job properly, it's not 40 hours or 35 hours. I mean, I don't know if I was an exception. I used to work about 70, 75 hours a week. And I think a lot of MPs, especially these days, do do that. The level of correspondence and constituents has gone through the roof. And actually, that's a sign of success in democracy. We should knock that. That's good that MPs are getting more correspondence. But, you know, the level of stuff I got from 1997 to 2015 probably doubled or trebled over that period of time. So there's a lot more to do in that sense. Um, secondly, it's a very can be a very stressful role. Um, you've seen um, some of the abuse MPs get for Brexit, for example. Whatever, whatever side you're on, you might get abuse on the other side. This has resulted in, in death threats and so on for some of the female MPs. I mean, this is some of the stuff that goes on. Um, it's, it's quite challenging sometimes to be an MP. Then you can be in a situation where you have to watch everything you say and everything you do because you walk down the street and you say the wrong thing to somebody. Suddenly it's on a tweet and you get rung up by a paper about it. So it is quite a challenging and stressful role. And it's a very important role. You're making legislation, uh, which affects people perhaps for centuries. Uh, no exaggeration. Some of the laws we've got in this country go back to the 14th century. The Treason Act, I think it's 1351. And therefore, you've got to think about what you're doing, which is seriously important in terms of legislation. You're also keeping, the, if you're a backbencher, you're holding the government to account. It's a very important democratic role to do that. So I don't think MPs' salaries is wrong. Um, I, I defend that. I didn't defend it at the time particularly because it sounded self-serving, but now I'm no longer an MP, I can say that. Do you think the expenses story reinforced unhealthy prejudices about Parliament, about this idea of people being feathering their own nests? Yes, I think it did. And I think it made MPs as a whole look out of touch and venal. Um, that was the impression given. And actually it's had a, an effect going on to the present day because there was a lack of trust in MPs. Um, those who support Brexit, for example, will see, in, will see perhaps in their own eye, through their own eyes MPs yet again failing to do the right thing. That's how they will see it. Um, I don't think that's fair, but I mean, that's how people will sometimes see it. And they will say, well, you look after their own um, expenses back now, they're, now they're paying no attention to the public through a referendum or whatever it happens to be. So those memories, first of all, still exist directly, but secondly, they have influenced the kind of background music which applies to, to MPs now. So it's still there. But I would argue that, yes, damage was done, but better damage was done then, and, and the damage stopped largely, than letting the thing get even worse and worse and worse. And it become even more of an embarrassment when the thing came out at some point in the future. Because look, make no mistake, when people abuse systems with public money, they will be found out. If not now, tomorrow, they'll be found out. Do you think on one level it's, a, it's like a communications problem as well? Because to bring it here, we reached out to numerous MPs to be interviewed for this series and you were the only person who's, who's willing to talk to us. <laughs> That's terrible, actually. People should be prepared to talk about it. Even those who are found to abuse the system should be able to come in and say, this is why I did it, or uh, this is what I've learned, or whatever. That's terrible. Yeah, it does seem to me kind of regretful that and there isn't a willingness to talk about this among MPs. Why do you think that is? Well, it's a shameful episode as part of it. And if people have got um, 
abuses themselves that they've carried out, then clearly they want to put that in the past and, and uh, I guess, pretend it didn't happen or move on. And I think it's been an important part of political development in this country. I think it's instructive for future generations, for historians and everybody else to look at how this happened, how it was allowed to unfold, why it wasn't stopped earlier, and how MP dealt with it. And that's what you're doing in your in your series. But it's important to analyse that. Um, I think it's important that MPs do learn lessons from it. Perhaps they have, and perhaps they haven't. But as I come back to my first point, I really feel it very strongly. The way to stop all this now and in the future is freedom of information. You make people accountable. You let people find out what people are doing with their money, it's public money. It doesn't get abused in the way it would do if it's secret. Norman Baker, thank you very much. Expenses is produced by me, Pete Norton, and Theodora Leloudis. We're mixed by David Crackles, and our theme music was composed by Elliot Lampitt, who also helped sound design this episode. Special thanks this week to Christopher Hope and Kate Ainsley. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Arthur Wynne Davies, the lawyer tasked with keeping the Telegraph out of court as they expose the expenses scandal, and a man who's still regarded by many of our reporters as the unsung hero of the story. Don't miss it. I'll spare you my full please leave a review for our spiel this time round, except to say, thanks for all the kind words. We read them all, and we've been really touched. See you next week. Okay, you're going to tell me it's not recorded. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll just run it, the whole thing through again, if that's okay. Um, Can we just get like a thank you, goodbye? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.